This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 129 of the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the first third of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King. All right, man, here we are in quarantine. Uh, The world has gone to shit a little bit. Um, Hopefully not too much worse, but, you know, yet to be determined. Um, We both thought Lord of the Rings might be a good idea for our first project, you know, in, in the current crisis. So, uh, yeah, just uh, how are you doing? How are you holding up with all this? Well, funny enough, I, uh, I'm i getting over a sickness. So, you know, there, there are not a ton of tests around currently, so I wasn't able to get tested to see if I had the virus, but pretty certain it was a virus. It wasn't bacterial or anything um, tested negative for the flu. So long and the short of it is I'm getting over the sickness. I'm okay. I hope everybody else is okay. Stay safe. You know, we had been, I I got sick after we had been self, you know, social distancing for for many days. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, not confirmed what it, what exactly it was, but I was pretty sick for a few days. What kind of symptoms did you have if you don't mind talking about it? Cough. I was having the tightness in the chest. I didn't get um, a really high fever or anything like that, which a lot of people are getting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did have a really deep cough, uh, crazy headache. That was the first thing actually was the headache. Um, and then the breathe, the difficulty to breathe was was really the the thing that I don't know made me think that potentially I had something similar to the, currently what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All that being said, I hope everybody's being safe out there. Um, you know, I haven't left the house in like a week and a half at this point. Right. Uh, hoping that everybody else, anybody else who's sick, definitely don't go out. Everybody's hearing it from every angle, but wash your hands and and you know social distance for a little bit. Um, yeah. And. I'm hoping everybody's able to work from home or, or figure something out. So people who might not know anybody who's who's had something like this, I mean, we don't know for sure that you had it, but just like how long has it been going on and like how severe would you say it is? First of all, my girlfriend had it worse than I did. Um, she works in the hospitality industry. Her hotel didn't close down uh, s- during any of this. Um, I think they're going to now um, in the next few days, but... Um, she got it. She, well, she got something. She went to the doctor, um, like three days after she'd been pretty sick, difficulty breathing, um, you know, a cough, headache. She was actually also experiencing nausea and she wasn't able to eat. And so she went to the doctor. They tested her for flu. They, they ruled out anything bacterial. And that's kind of where they gave the same medication you would get if you were confirmed. There were, there weren't tests in, in our, in our county or in our area. So, they gave her the medicine medicine and, and the kind of the treatment um, options of as if she had it. They, she, they said, don't go to work, stay home, don't leave the house, take this medicine so you don't get pneumonia, that kind of stuff. Right. And then a few days, so she went to the doctor on Thursday, I'll say. And then I think I started to experience this, this symptoms on like the f- Saturday or Sunday. So that's and only then, a few days ago. Well... I guess I started getting it on like, yeah, Friday, Saturday. 
it's been about you know i guess like Tuesday, four or five today. days now yeah yeah I definitely have experienced, I'm, I'm feeling better than I was like two or three days ago. So I think for myself, mm-hmm. kind of the worst has passed, I'm hoping. But this morning yeah. I woke up not feeling too great. But anyway, enough about all that. No, I um, mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting. And, and um, we, we debated whether we were even going to do this episode. Obviously, you know, I, your health is more important. And I said, you know, if, we, if you're not feeling it, we, should, we can just postpone a week or, or what have you. Um, but you felt okay enough to read. Um, so that was something you were able to do. And then even today it was kind of iffy whether or not you were going to fill up for recording, but whenever I talked to you, you seem pretty fine. So, um, you know, we decided to give it a go. Um, for me, I'm in a hotel right now. Um, I'm having this remodel done, um, due to a dishwasher flood in our unit. And it's, and we've been out for three months now and we ended up, we're ended up in a hotel that's at like 10% occupancy. I've been tweeting, I tweeted a little bit about it, how I feel kind of like uh, Jack Torrance in the shining a little bit here. And, um, and you know, it's, it's not really been fun. I'll say that. And, uh, really right here at the finish line, uh, having additional delays and then having all this go down has really sucked. And like, we really just want to get back into our condo. And you guys are in, you guys are in, um, a state of, we're about to be, I think in a day or two, our governor just, or our mayor just announced that we're in a, seek what is it called like the seek shelter yeah uh i think it's like a lockdown i i don't know yeah. what the exact shelter in home shelter in place shelter in home shelter yeah. in place yeah that's what it is yeah I'm, and i'm in oregon and you're in florida um in case you don't know um and yeah so we're, we're we're complying with that as much as possible you know we have to walk the dogs and stuff like that but um we don't we avoid people we do the social distancing um i always let elevators go by if i see that there's people on them you know i don't i don't write elevators with people i i just brought that up to as to say with all, everything else going on for you you're, you're also in the same sort of lockdown situation yeah. not in your home which is which is really rough yeah it's been tough but uh so i'm recording from a hotel room so if you hear any weird sounds or if i sound different or if just the room tone sounds weird that's what's going on we're also pretty near a railroad so there might be some train noises tough to predict um so anyway you know hopefully you guys all understand because you know these are unusual times uh, not our usual setup but we thought honestly like i wanted to record the episode if possible because it feels normal to me and it's just something i enjoy doing so it's something i wanted to do um and we had been talking about doing uh return of the king this year Uh, that was a project we knew we were going to do and when this all started happening we thought well maybe now's a good time for this because um it's a story that i mean we're going to spoil it you know we assume that everybody's either seen the movie or read it at this point it's quite old um and it's a movie about good triumphing over evil at long odds um, it's about dark times, but, you know, the light shining through and that kind of stuff. It's, there's a lot of sort of uplifting um, quotes in there. And I was I was finding comfort in reading it somewhat, even though this is a very dark installment, at least the parts we're reading early on uh, with the Siege of Minas Tirith and everything. Um, but it, it felt appropriate to me, too, because it was, it was a lot of foreboding. There was a lot of, like, waiting for this coming storm and the mm-hmm. coming onslaught and... I couldn't help but make all these comparisons to how how I'm feeling now. So um, that's why we chose to do it now. Um, we're going to do a deep dive into it. We're going to be covering the first six chapters today. Uh, then we're going to cover, uh, which is essentially the, the first third of the book. Then we'll cover the middle third and the last third in the coming weeks. And then we'll watch that big, you know, four-hour epic movie to cap off our Lord of the Rings coverage, which will be our 12th episode on the Lord of the Rings. So um, it's, been a, it's been a long journey, and I'm looking forward to the uh, ending bit here yeah yeah it's been, it was comforting like uh 
I definitely don't think I would have been up to to start reading if we had started sooner than we did. But it was like kind of the perfect time. I was coming out of this um, this funk that I've been in, and then uh, we get to we get to read about sort of like the combining of the forces of men and yeah. like men coming together and like working together on a kind of standing back to back. And I feel like in this time of us, like you know, clearly we're all separated. But like it is, if you are taking the sacrifices to be away from everybody and that kind of thing. It really does feel like it's sort of like this, like, um, I don't know, this like coming together of, of everyone. And like, there's sort of, it feels like the, the world as a whole is going through something. Um, and you know, all this other stuff that seems to be a big deal when there's not a pandemic out there, uh, you know, melted away pretty quickly. And, and I feel, I think countries are coming to help each other. I think that, you know, I'd like to see more of it. Yeah. Uh, this idea of, of people coming together, even though we, and, you know, ironically, we can't be together right now. Just people coming together to, to like protect others and, and sort of like not get anybody else sick, that sort of yeah. thing. It definitely felt in keeping with the themes of what's going on right now. Well, and it feels, it does feel sort of like a wartime in some sense. Uh, it's just war against a virus. And the people fighting it are their healthcare workers. So, you know, my, my, heart goes out to all the healthcare workers out there and I, you know, we're pulling for you and you're on the front lines dealing with this with not enough supplies and, and, uh, you know, not enough help from the government and leadership is sometimes dodgy and it's dodgy in this book at times and it's very dodgy in this country. So I think there's, there's just a lot of parallels. Um, and I mean, we're going to try not to make everything about the current situation, but like, you know, like how can you not, you know? So, yeah. Well, I, uh, famously, Tolkien disliked allegory, so let's know, just right? not draw any allegory <laughs> to anything ever, even though, right. like, for whatever reason, you could put any situation up against these stories, and it kind of yeah. seems like an allegory for, you know, Christ and the Bible or, like, <laughs> World War II and all these different things. It's, yeah. it's really funny. Well, and, and even that even that quote is overblown. We talked about it at length, I think, but um, just to re- re- revisit it a little bit, he was basically saying he thinks allegory can be reductive if you look at something and say, oh, it's just an allegory for World War, the First World War or World War II, and that's all right. it is, and you don't look at it from any other perspective. Like, he always wanted it to be like, no, it is, it is something you can use as a prism to look at many things. That way, people like us could come along in this year and use that to compare to what we're going through now. You know what I mean? Where if it had been a direct allegory and that's all it was, maybe it would be more difficult to do that. But yeah. anyway, um, if you're ready, man, I'm ready to get into this. And uh, let's kick off our Return of the King coverage. Let's do it. So the year was 1955. And I just wanted to mention that um, a particular world-changing event took place that year. Dr. Jonas Salk started inoculating children against polio for the first time. And a journalist asked him who, quote, owned the, the patent for the polio vaccine. And his response was, quote, well, the people, I would say, there is no patent. Could you patent the sun? And Jonas made it available for no charge. So I just thought that was interesting because I was looking up the year that that literally happened, the year this book came out and with everything going on in our, our current state of affairs. So I, yeah. I had to mention it. Mm-hmm. Interesting to think about the yeah. the kind of connection there yeah it's weird when i saw that i was like man i can't believe that happened the same year you know just out of the blue yeah um so but in with the book itself i thought this was interesting um we've talked about how tolkien originally conceived of the lord of the rings as as a single volume comprising six quote books um plus appendices 
and he had titles for each of those volumes. Um, and this one, his proposed title for book five, which, so the, this Return of the King comprises books five and six. His proposed titles for book five was The War of the Ring, and for book six, The End of the Third Age. Um, but the publisher overruled him um, and decided to go with The Return of the King. He disliked the title because he felt like it gave away too much of the plot. And I, I can understand that. I mean, it's like... it. I think there there were like sort of hints for people to pick up on. Not even hints, but it was clear that Aragorn was to be the king returning, I think. Yeah. Um, I think that was for, for big Tolkien fans at that point, like people who really dug into all of the yeah. details. And so to call it, you know, Return of the King, I think like you start to see like, oh, Aragorn is the heir pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, he's going to return. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> I guess we've already s- started to see him return, you know, six chapters into the book. Yeah. So. I guess it's not too much of a spoiler. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I was thinking this is one of those rare books um, where I've always sort of grown up knowing the plot of it. Yeah, you know, like I saw it at I, at some point I saw the animated series for the first time. You know what I mean? But I, I can't recall when that was. So it's like I've right. always known the plot of this. I, and it's I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to be like really into these books read the first two, be waiting for the third to come out, you know, on release day and not knowing how it's going to end. Um, that must have been so exciting, you know, and and yeah. for, for fantasy fans that were in a, you know, nascent uh, genre that was really just starting to find its own through through this massive series um, in the UK. And then as it came over to America too, you know, it, it must have been, must have been an exciting time. And um, I tried to put myself in that mindset a little bit of like, imagining what it would be like if I didn't know what was going to happen next, which was kind of fun. It is interesting because I felt that I could sense the shifting in tone with the beginning of this book. So it kind of even like tonally, I think whether, you know, he wanted it to be one entire volume comprised of six different parts or whatever it was. Yet it felt like at the very beginning, it felt like he had taken a break and then started writing this one. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm assuming that's probably what happened. But it just feels tonally like we shift immediately into darkness, like, overbearing like bearing down on our all of our characters from all angles and shadows and the 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 like you know clearly our all of our heroes are like underdogs as soon as this starts whereas kind of in books one and two there was like a looming threat and it's like immediately present in the beginning of this book so Mm -hmm. i think for me tonally it's like return of the king just like the book specifically well in the movie but the book really goes out of its way to be like this is the war like this is what we've all been building to this is like this is the the dire moments that we've been hinting at and you know characters have been leading towards and clearly this return of the king thing you know we've we've heard of the different we've heard of the different factions of men and sort of like heard of the old the old kingdom of men and how powerful they were and and like sort of like the legends of the past and Isildur and all this stuff um and then you know starting out we're like well why are the men all separated like if they just came together maybe they could defeat Sauron again so you know I think it's clear that that's what's building in this in this story yeah i think it's clear to me that this book feels more focused um early on it feels like he had a he had a mission you know and in the the narrative itself had really found its footing and he set out to create foreboding and a sense of impending doom and um it feels like the prose is maybe a little less meandering than it can be at times in some of the previous books um 
yeah, he loves a florid description of a, of a countryside, don't get me wrong, and we still get a bunch of that. Um, we get a lot of world building. Yeah, and now we just get it covered in shadow. It's yeah. like, you know, the, the looming shadow or like the, the darkness, right. uh, the black ink of the darkness out the window and that, that sort of stuff. So he still well, describes it. It's just he also describes like this overbearing darkness. In that sense, it's more purposeful in that way, right? Um, he's not just kind of reveling in it to revel in it. Um, so I guess I appreciate that. Like, I feel like, um, immediately more of a steady hand is guiding me here than I felt necessarily in two towers. I also really like how, uh, Pippin and Mary are sort of focal point characters that we're seeing these, these, uh, early storylines play out through. And, um, I, I took this note that I, I really feel like Tolkien is at his best, in my opinion, when he's writing from the point of view even though it is omniscient, but he's sort of channeling these hobbits and he's writing from the point of view of sort of the everyman kind of average in over their head, um, not great men of old, you know, like they're around great men, but they're not themselves that, but they kind of are like he, when he's right. working in that mode, he's that's like where he's golden. And, and we're getting that with Pippin and Mary here in their own ways, right. which is really cool. I felt some of that too. For For me, I think what I keyed in on was this idea that these like valiant heroes, these like Aragorns and your Theodens and all these people, your Aomirs and and everybody like that, they're clearly always going to do the the righteous and and like amazing battling and virtuous, all this stuff. They're always going to be that character. And then I think Tolkien's much more interested in exploring like these characters that are much more meek and like they they don't come from these backgrounds of glory and all this stuff. And when they achieve greatness, that's when. I think you can see sort of like the ripples that are created by somebody like that, like someone of lower stature that that like does something so important is right. is more impactful than someone who always does it and always will um, doing something similar. Well, yeah, and you could also take that a step further and say maybe these people that from from stories that we imagine to be larger than life are themselves grounded in a way, you know, and and through the through the lens of story we imagine them as these monolithic you know, untouchable people. Yet, if we see the fact that, you know, Mary can become a, a, a important figure or what have you, then there's something to be said for like, every one of them might have a little bit of that in them too. Like they're just people that are caught up in these moments. Um, it's it inter- It's interesting because he, he does play with both, right? And he definitely loves to talk about like, the old, the, the kings of old and like, you know, being, being the child of a king and how you, how you have all this, you know, power. And, um, there's a lot of that for sure. He likes to talk about, um, which seems very rooted in sort of, um, British, you know, lore, um, of the time and of times past. Um, so as an American, some of that strikes me as a little odd, but it, it kind of makes sense for the world that he's created, I guess. Speaking of these, you know, these characters that, are seemingly so powerful. I didn't remember in the novels they they're almost given some of these characters are almost given like abilities in the sense of like they're doing these deeds that are so I don't know. And even in some cases it's not like um like Denethor mm-hmm. has like this ability to like like you know feel people out to the point that it almost feels supernatural and like Aragorn like like they, it almost seems like some of these some of these people are so willful that they they almost manifest powers, which mm-hmm. I didn't really remember from the novels. Cause it, and, like, there's moments of Aragorn, like, seemingly, like, 
I don't know, channeling some sort of power or something. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I kept being surprised and being like, wow, this like it's striking me a little different than I than I can remember. I didn't remember these, and and I think that you could write it off as like just like the the flourishes that Tolkien is is you know doing in his writing and the way that he's describing how, how these deeds that pe- these people are doing. But it almost to me tweaks into like the supernatural for sure. And they're just men. He's dancing along that line of um, these moments can seem supernatural because they're so uplifting or there's like the the way a commander can take control of a battlefield and, and inspire his troops and yeah like theoden you know, there's yeah, that moment theoden, of theoden yeah. doing that yeah yeah and like that can almost seem supernatural but then again that could also just be a normal will occurrence you yeah, know that is right. that is magical in its own way perhaps but um if you're ready i think i'm gonna do i'm gonna do like a little just brief summary sentence for each chapter um to set up a, our discussion of these individual chapters all right sounds good okay so chapter one is called Minas Tirith. And in it, Gandalf and Pippin travel to Minas Tirith. They arrive there and they talk to Denethor. Uh, Pippin enters the service of the steward. So that is just really rough what happens in that. Um, we, we, we get introduced to Denethor, which is a really interesting character to talk about. But before we get to him, I want to back up a little bit and read a selection um, that I found pretty striking when I, when I picked up this book. Um, and that was just when Pippin and the others were, were arriving at Minas Tirith. And I think this is just an example of like the kind of writing that Tolkien is so good at, um, you know, and he's doing it really, he's employing it really well here. Even as Pippin gazed in wonder, the walls passed from looming gray to white, blushing faintly in the dawn. And suddenly the sun climbed over the eastern shadow and sent forth a shaft that smote the face of the city. Then Pippin cried aloud, for the tower of Acthelion standing high within the topmost wall, shone out against the sky, glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver, tall and fair and shapely, and its pinnacle glittered as if it were wrought of crystals. And white banners broke and fluttered from the battlements in the morning breeze, and high and far he heard the clear ringing of silver trumpets. So that's the description of like when you first see Minas Tirith, and I mean, it's just a paragraph, but he does so much there in creating the majesty uh, of this grand city. I don't know. So that was really cool. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, I think we've probably talked about it on every episode, just the way that he describes things. And I, I think that, that there's something, there's something of a disconnect for some fantasy fans, because I think they might be looking for like more of the, the sword battles and things like that. And I don't think that Tolkien necessarily excels, although there's, there's a battle here that I think is pretty well executed yeah. um, in these six chapters. But uh, I, I think it's more about the fantasy elements. I think it's more about the lore for people. I think it's more about the, like the, you know, the bloodlines, the, the different races. And of course he's like the godfather of a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think his prose style has affected a generation of fantasy writers who've come after him and tried to do something like this. You know what I mean? Because this, it, in right. some ways, in some sense, if you read a lot of fantasy, you'll hear this and go like, "It sounds a little, a little fantasy," you know, like a little over the top. And I think it's a lot of writers growing up reading this and wanting to write like that. I think you can even look at someone like George R. R. Martin, who whose prose I enjoy, but some people balk at because he can do a little bit of this kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's a direct, um, in, I think he, he's writing in conversation with Tolkien in a way, because he's writing a world that is on its surface, similar to Tolkien's yet, you know, obviously way different when you look beneath the surface. Right. So 
I just think it's interesting to go back and see this and, and, and imagine how this, this kind of writing affected everybody who, who came after. Um, but let's continue on. So we meet Denethor here uh, through Pippin um, and Gandalf arriving to speak with him. And Denethor is just a really interesting character. Um, it's, it's, you know, I feel like I, when I think about Tolkien, I don't give him enough credit for characters like this that are actually... Um, really engaging, create a lot of drama. Um, you f- sort of feel sorry for her even while you root against them, but like he's lost his son, Boromir, and he is clearly grieving him. And yet um, he has some sort of noble sense to him. Like he's not a pure villain. You know what I mean? So, right, well, and you can also sense that he, while seemingly fulfilling his oath as steward of Gondor, mm-hmm. also likes being, wishes that he was a legitimate king. For sure. I mean, he wishes that that, that's like as much as he's like fulfilling an oath and fulfilling the duty and like doing it only until the king returns, like he doesn't want the king to return. And like, there's so much of that where he's so easy to hate, but at the same time, because we're invested in like the goings on of men and like Boromir and Faramir, like we're invested in kind of what's around him. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to kind of feel bad for him sometimes just because I just think about what we're going to talk about in a couple chapters. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck you, Denethor. (laughs) (laughs) So we also get warnings um, through Gandalf to Pippin about things not to talk about. He tells him, don't don't talk, you know, too much about Frodo and the ring. And he says, don't mention Aragorn or, you know. And so whenever we're getting warnings like that, like we're on guard to not trust this guy. So, so he's, he's set up in, the, in that way, and we're, we're kind of ready for him to be a little dodgy, and, and he is. Um, and then, you know, Pippin, I think, kind of surprises everybody by uh, swearing fealty to him because he feels guilty about Boromir dying. And um, we'll see in the next chapter that I think it's, it's interesting how Tolkien sets up um, this, this side-by-side comparison because Merry will, will be doing the same thing with Theoden. And then mm-hmm. he can create this sort of side-by-side comparison of the kings between uh, Theoden and Denethor and how they each interact with someone swearing fealty to them and what they, what they demand and what they, you know what I mean, like uh, how they how they manipulate that bond or don't. And, you know, it's it's like an old old saying, but just like the, the way that you you like can judge the character of a, of a man by how they treat the, the people who serve them kind of thing, the people who are below yeah. them. Um, and like we very easily can just look at Denethor versus Theoden and see the difference in sort of the character right. of, the, of the two kings. Yeah. The one, one steward, one king. Right. The two leaders. Um, and then after this, we get actually, I thought was a really kind of nice um, bit of humor where we get Pippin talking to this character, uh, Baragond. Um, I believe is how you say his name and, and asking him like, all right, when's, where's my meal? And we get a little bit of that, like Pippin of old, you know, mm-hmm. um, is a little lighthearted, but yet still sort of ominous because um, he kind of knows what's coming. Yeah, and then he also he invites Pippin to go meet his son, who's like mm-hmm. a child, but they're like, you know, similar in stature. So they go around together and tour, kind of tour the city. And I think the kid's name is Burgle, is, is <laughs> Baragon's son. And uh-huh. he's like all at first kind of hesitant, like thinking this guy is, you know, older than me, but I could probably take him in a fight to eventually respecting him because he's able to get into certain areas in the castle and just like getting to explore Minas Tirith and seeing Berrigan's son uh, and that perspective and the way that kind of the men think of think of Pippin because of the fact that they were like, yeah, if you want somebody to hang out with, go hang out with like my 10-year-old son. Yeah, they kind of 
think of him as as children for sure. But, but Pippin is like he's he's fine with it. He's happy to go <laughs> uh, hang out with this kid. So yeah. you know, I think it's it just shows like the kind of the personality of the hobbits and and sort of like what what they're willing to put up with and and sort of why. I think honestly why they're able to overcome things that other people weren't. I think I think if you think of a man who's been told like oh go go hang out with my son like the pride of men would would you know be their folly in that situation but this hobbit is just like yeah I guess I'm going to go hang out with the kid and it's not that big of a deal I'm not going to think any anything of it and yeah. ends up enjoying it. Yeah and you know Pippin's got this heart of gold and he's he's maybe the most pure of all the hobbits in a sense. Um, and of course, you know, it's when you take someone that pure and you put them on the front lines of this impending war, um, there's an inherent sort of drama there, which we'll be getting into. All right. So chapter two is called the passing of the gray company. This chapter follows Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli as they pass through the paths of the dead between Rohan and Gondor. So this, this chapter actually starts out with an interesting bit where, uh, this guy named Halbarad, and um, some other people from the the land where Aragorn once d- dwelt show up, um, you know, riding horses and sort of uh, meet up with the, Roh- the the riders of Rohan and uh, you know join forces for a moment at least. And we we find out a little bit about the people that the Aragorn uh, once grew up around, um, which is not mm-hmm. something I remember from the movie at all. So it was an interesting bit for me. This is my first time reading this book. I don't know if I said that or not, but um, so some of this stuff is new for me for sure. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. There aren't they um, sons of Elrond? I think the, some of the people who come. Yeah, there's two. There's there's two there who are said to be the sons of Elrond. I, is that literal? Like, are they actually sons of Elrond? I think or? so. Okay, I think I so. Yeah. Clear. As far as far as I know, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the Dunedain are the others who who we meet yeah. up with, right? Okay, yeah. so yeah, very interesting because they they go along with Aragorn, and he's like, "Well, it's time for me to split up with the Riders of Rohan." at some point yeah and he's he's gonna go to these they they say remember the past of the dead and he doesn't want to do that but then he gets convinced that that's the you know the best option and then yeah it's it's him gimli legolas and these 30 dunedin writers that all go together in in the the book and uh i think i'm not 100 percent, but i think the the remember the path of the dead comes from elrond I'm not 100% on that, but I think that that's a message from Rivendell to... Yeah, I think it was from Rivendell, yeah, which would imply Elrond. Right. So anyway, they so they're going to take the path of the dead and Theoden and his men are like, no, we're not going that way. Yeah. And then Aragorn gets the company, which the company, there's no company that comes along with them in the film. Yeah, no. But so this company comes, he is Aragorn just through sheer force of leadership is able to convince this company to come in with him, obviously with... um, Legolas and and uh, Gimli as well, and uh, the scene in the film is kind of a it's a it's a big one and it, there's a lot of build up and it was there but honestly it's like a page in the book they go into this path and and you know the spirits are lingering around and I think Aragorn calls out for will are the, will they fulfill their oath and there's no reply really but eventually yeah. as they make their way through the path. They look. They Legolas realizes that the that the spirits are tr- kind of traveling with them. Yeah. The spirits of the, the dead, the so called Gray Company. Yeah, exactly. I I kind of like how it's handled in this really sort of subtle way. Like he doesn't do a lot des- of describing of what they look like or exactly what they how much of a presence they actually have. He, mm-hmm. he instead describes like the townsfolk and the countryside, like fleeing and. You know right. this this gray company riding through the the and they are like telling stories of the the king who rides at the head of the gray company and all this stuff. Um, 
you know, they, they do it in a way, a roundabout way that I think works really well. Um, well, we'll get to my issues with, I, I take some issues with this stuff in the movie. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of withholding judgment here to see how I feel about it. Um, but I, with the context of the book. Yeah, I already, I already like the way the dead are handled a little more in the book than, than what we get in the movie. Um, yeah. Because they are a little bit, they're a little bit kind of rule breaky to me. They're a little bit um, kind of like a like a like a cheap out in the movie. More so though, I think they do a lot more in the book to set them up, and they don't feel as overpowered, um, which we can get to when we get to the movie. Yeah, that's something else I want to talk about. Was the backstory that we get? I think maybe is more clear or more powerful, just in the way that it's described. Because I think it's described from Thaden's. Uh, sort of retelling of it and Aragorn mm-hmm. sing, there's a song that he sings as well as like some description yeah um, and I think those together create this sort of lore and backstory there that like obviously we know like oh they betrayed them because of Sauron and like when when Isildur called for the for the men to f- help them fight Sauron we find out that the men had fallen to Sauron and were were um, in his service and then and didn't fulfill their oath yeah, and, and he cursed them. He cursed them, and then, but I think just like the lore of having the song and this sort of idea that Aragorn, like the song is like I, I don't know. I was listening to this this analysis where somebody was mentioning that the idea of of story in Tolkien's sort of viewpoint with this with these the reason there's so many songs and and a lot of this stuff. Um, is just that like before the written word was really the way that people consumed stories and things like that. Songs and sort of performances were the ways that people conveyed important information. And the fact that Aragorn knows this song, which is the exact information that like eventually would lead to him calling on them for aid, calling on their, you know, them to fulfill their oath is sort mm-hmm. of like in showing that like the songs and the, the lore around everything is, is it as important as it it's, it might be just be entertaining, but as well as its information that like if Aragorn didn't know the song, he might not know every detail he needed in order to, you know, get this aid that they're going to they're going to need here. But one more thing I wanted to mention with all this Aragorn, the, the powers that Aragorn has and everything like that. Aragorn legit confronts Sauron through the Palantir in, yes. in Return of the King in yeah. the book here. Yeah, yeah. Which is something that's like, wow, like he just straight up o- overpowered Sauron using the Palantir. He at least like threw the gauntlet down and was like, "I'm coming for you." And and yeah, um, we hear later from Gandalf, who who sort of guesses that this is what Aragorn did. That that maybe this sort of sparked the um, the attack to happen sooner than it would have otherwise, um, right. which maybe implies that he isn't as ready as he would have been. Um, I don't know. Uh, you also could argue that maybe it's a bad thing because everybody couldn't get together in time. Um, yeah. Debatable. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, just the fact that he had the the not only the wherewithal but the power yeah. to like to like contend with Sauron in that way, and it's like it's he's fully embraced the fact that he is a Sealdor's heir and he's the king at this point, um, and I think that's where the powers draw derive yeah. from. It really doesn't feel like this is sort of Strider the Ranger. This feels like Aragorn the the Return of the King, and he's he's fully embraced it now. I guess after the yeah. events of. Uh, of, of the two towers. Um, but I do want to mention a couple other things that happen in this chapter that are really interesting. Um, for one, we do get Mary swearing fealty to Theoden, which we talked about, which I like that he's setting up that comparison point. But then the other one is Eowyn. Uh, this is her first moment where she's trying to, she wants to go with Aragorn on this mission. And they have this, uh, this conversation where she's, she's giving all these like 
compelling reasons why she should be able to go. And Aragorn just keeps basically saying, no, think of your duty. Think of what your father and brother would say. I can't mm-hmm. have you come. And she says, quote, all your words are but to say you are a woman and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honor, you have you have leave to be burned in the house for the men will have n- need of it no more. Um, and I, I just thought this was a great line. And this is the kind of thing like I've been waiting for, you know, like I knew I knew that it was coming and I'm glad that we're getting it here through Eowyn. Um, and I, I just love to see her character sort of battling against this really entrenched patriarchy that is permeates all of the Lord of the Rings. Like it is Every, it's everywhere, right? Like it is all the men. The women all stay home. It is. It is just everywhere. It's all kings. It's all. It's all very male. And I like that Tolkien at least puts in a little bit to sort of question that and whether or not that's right and whether or not that's what we should all be um, championing here. Um, and I think through Eowyn we do get a little a little bit of that, and it builds into its own uh, arc, which we'll get into. That I think goes to and goes to nice places. Yeah, Eowyn's awesome. I think we'll talk more about her in a little bit. Absolutely. Um, and then, yeah, I love it. He says, uh, what, what is it you, where he says like, what do you fear lady? And she says a cage. Um, and yeah. it's just it's some really great lines. Like that whole exchange I thought was, was really, really well written. And then we get chapter three. So chapter three is called the muster of Rohan. Rohan prepares for war. Mary heads off for Minas Tirith on a horse with a rider who calls himself Durnhelm. Here we go. So this is, um, we get a little bit more Theoden here, and I just really like Theoden as a character. He's not perfect, you know what I mean? Like, he's 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 clearly a good leader, but I like that Tolkien is able to show that, like, he's a little bit stubborn, and mm-hmm. he does think that he knows best, and he's unwilling to li- listen to outside counsel sometimes. So he kind of shows that, like, while he's a good man, and he knows how to give a great speech... Um, he does have like a fail state, and that is when he is convinced he knows what's best and won't listen to anyone else. And we get that a lot with him and Aragorn. I would throw out that you have to think you have to think of Theoden, what, like where Theoden started this story, where the started this adventure. Right. Like we're we're dealing with Theoden, who was completely um, listening to counsel. That's so true. to see, I guess, like him him flipped in this in this regard, and like to stand by what he thinks is right at this point, um, and to be that leader. I think is is something to think about as well. But yeah, I think I, you know I'm glad that there's some flaws to him, and you know there's that moment. I, I I don't. I think it might be this chapter or next chapter where he there's like that hesitation. Um, he you know he it is next chapter, so maybe I'll wait on it. But basically, there's hesitation, and he sees a battle going on, and there's almost like a a faltering of of man, and then there's like a spark that happens, and then again a great speech, and and they yeah. they ride into battle, but. Yeah, this sort of this like leader who isn't perfect, but you know is gonna do what's right by him at this point um, is a lot better than Theoden as you know like answering to Wormtongue or or at least listening yeah. to everything Wormtongue says. Well, and he has this great line where he says, "And so we come to it in the end, the great battle of our time, in which many things shall pass away." And I just like there's so many cool lines. I, I a lot of them make it into the movie, which I'm happy about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know performed brilliantly so they stick out to me when i read them now um, i was gonna say how much of this do you do you like sort of like finish a scene in the book and then just like meditate and think about <laughs> the scene in the movie and you're like yeah this is this is how that went yeah. down and this is how well it's interesting because i'm already noticing some changes we'll get into more of that when yeah. we get into the movie but like some of these lines are kind of pulled and it's kind of smart it's like you take this this cool line that happens in a moment of like that's not as dramatic and then you take it and you put it in a more dramatic moment. Yeah, totally. That that like for, for ride for ruin. 
And yeah. the, like that, that's, is that, is that specifically what well, you're talking a- about? Cause yeah, we're getting to that one later, but that's Amir who says that. Yeah. But a diff- at a different moment as well. And I think at a different moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was smart to move it. We'll get to that. Um, so Mary here is facing this this situation where he's being told he's not going to get to go. Um, he has mm-hmm. to go with these other people, and he doesn't like it. And he finally meets this unknown soldier who calls himself Dernhelm, um, and is quite obviously Aowen. <laughs> yeah. Yet, yet Mary can't tell, and um, this Dernhelm wants to go to the battle. And uh, says you can ride with me. Who? Because Mary has this whole time where he's trying to convince, um, trying to convince uh, Theoden that he can, he can, you know, throw me over uh, over the back of a horse, tie me to a saddlebag, whatever. I'm, yeah, you know, I just want to go. And he's like, no, we can't do that. Um, and, and in a sense, like we, there's an interesting comparison between Theoden and Aragorn here, just both being so unwilling to let people ride into danger with them who they deem you know, like um, un, unfit for battle in a way, whether that's the hobbits or women. Um, right. And I think that, I think we are being shown that there is, um, that's faulty logic and that we're, we're being shown that ultimately, um, you know, people like, like Mary and people like Eowyn have a lot to offer. And I think that's a good message, you know, in, in this old book. <laughs> this is a, this is a spoiler. If you don't know how this, this story ends, um, maybe we're, skip ahead like 30 seconds or <laughs> nah, so. We're but, spoiling it, man. Don't yeah, worry about it's, it. <laughs> I, the entire Return of the King, the end of Return of the King, I just think that goes to show like ultimately, you, from what you just said, it's ultimately not these like grand heroes that save the day. Yes, they they play a huge part and they help, but they kind of don't help. Like it's uh, these smaller individuals that n- not even that Sauron didn't think could, could create any sort of uh, issue for him. It's, you know, it's yeah. the people... And, and like I think Gandalf had the 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 foresight to to understand that that Sauron would overlook them, but everyone's overlooked the hobbits continuously. And then and then you know ultimately, even here we see that Mary is the one who kind of saves the day when we get to this final chapter. So uh, we'll talk about that. But these these characters clearly Tolkien is is saying, um, you know, everyone is important and uh, everyone has a role to play. We talked about it way back when we started out our Lord of the Rings coverage about how um, he said that he was inspired by these these uh, soldiers he served with in World War One that were these like common guys off the farm who were out there fighting and you know he want I think clearly the hobbits are those characters right like they're, they're like this the war's too big for them you know but they're there and they're making a difference in their own way um, and. You know, I I still believe that these characters are are where he is really um, writing to his strength. Now, just because we gave him so much credit, um, I do want to go ahead and say a little bit of a critique here, and that go is, I just cringe every time I hear about the swarthy Southerners and the Easterners who are here, you know, fighting on the side of Mordor for like no discernible reason. Um, other than they're just wild and barbaric, and and you know mm-hmm. he uses all these terms, um, uncouth, you know, all this stuff, and it just makes me cringe. Um, we do get a little bit of like one, um, and it was nice. We get these wild men mm-hmm. later who are sort of act like um, guides, which is a nice like at least there are some of these like non clearly you know being read as like white dude you know, Aryan type um, uh, kingdoms of men that are the good ones. Um, There's some people who aren't that, who are still fighting on the side of light. Um, But uh, yeah, I just cringe every time that comes up. 
And I kind of wish it wasn't in there, but you know what I mean? Like, that's just yeah. the way it is when you go back and read these old books, you know, and I think it's still worth to look at it and say, like, I, I like that it did this and I don't like that it did this. Right. And, you know, I think that's still valid. It's just unfortunate because there are, like, we get we get characters that betray their oaths, you know, that are clearly sort of the same um, stat- status within Middle Earth as some of these other races of men. And these ones are seemingly like the wild um you know like you said like uncouth like all of this stuff um i think these characters could have just been adjusted to be to be sort of other other races of men or other villages of men that just turned and you know it doesn't really need yeah. to be specifically like the you know i what what clearly is i think a sort of uh racially motivated uh yeah sort of character move here for for some of these guys um it, it, I think like what I'm trying to say is that clearly you don't it, like he he has characters that are kind of in the same boat that if that are on the side of Sauron that aren't necessarily the ones that he's taught that he has right. as the current enemies that they're fighting against. Interesting stuff. I mean, and that's not to, that's not even to bring up the conversation we had way back about the orcs and and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, how they're this sort of mindless monolith, yeah, and, and what they might represent. And there's been a lot of great writing done about this. Um, we're not gonna, we're not really getting into that, but I do recommend looking into it. Um, there is definitely racial politics in this in these books. Um, you can look into it. Um, you know, it's it's there. So I, I just feel like we need to address it a little bit. All right. So chapter four is called the Siege of Gondor. Uh, we go back to Gandalf and Pippin and the preparations of the city of Minas Tirith for the attack by the armies of Mordor. Minas Tirith is besieged, and the chapter ends at the gate of Minas Tirith with it broken, and the army of Rohan finally arrives. All right, so this is a, a this is a, a a lengthy chapter, and a lot happens in it. Um, mm-hmm. It begins with Pippin being roused by Gandalf, who is called the White Rider, and um, we see him ride out. Uh, and he banishes these flying black riders, and he and he basically rescues Faramir, who's with his his you know uh, army, who's retreating um, from the front lines. And we get Bra- uh, Faramir gets brought before Denethor. And just to jump in, Faramir had been visiting Theoden because uh, he dropped off the the arrow, the like right. summoning summoning Theoden and, and the riders of Rohan. Um, so on his way back, he encountered the Nazgul and, and yep. sort of like the army of, of Sauron. Sorry, continue. Yes. And so then we bring him before and then we get to see um, the wonderful relationship between Denethor and, Fer- and Faramir, where uh, he, Faramir literally says, do you wish it was me instead of Boromir who died? And Denethor says, yes, uh, yeah. which is just like... Just so cruel and cold. Where it's like, fuck you, Denethor. Yeah, and uh, and then and then Faramir is just like, what 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 do you want me to do? And he's like, I want you know, you need to go out there and do my bidding and and take this fight. That even though you're going to be outnumbered a thousand to one, um, I just want you to do it. And Faramir, in sort of a very fatalistic way, kind of knows it's going to be his doom, and he says, all right, I'll do it because at this point he just wants to do anything to get back in his father's graces. And then we get a, a great line from Gandalf later where he's talking to him and he says, uh, when he's talking to Faramir and he says, uh, don't throw your, your life fa- away. Yeah, he says, don't throw your life away. And he says, your father loves you and he'll remember it in the end or before mm-hmm. this ends or something like that. And, you know, I it, like much of what Gandalf says, it kind of rings with a hint of prophecy almost. And mm-hmm. we kind of get an idea of what might be coming. The tragedy of Faramir, um, we talked a lot about Boromir in, well, I guess technically for the book in in um 
two towers because it yeah. happens in two towers. Faramir is right there with Boromir for me. It's just the tragedy that's there. The fact that he didn't look on his on his two sons as equals and the fact that he saw one as lesser, um, you know, it's a tragedy that Boromir dies the way he does and doesn't get to see the race of men return and all of that. Uh, Faramir is still here and he like he not sent into a suicide mission had a huge role to play or you know I'm not I guess we can get into spoilers anyway things are building up currently that make us believe that that Faramir is dead well, and he's not which we which not, you find out yeah. later but just the way that Den- Denethor is treating Faramir and the way that he's like uh, you know later on it'll be like he's poisoned and sick and he's not willing to I think it, uh, due to his own hubris and, and the fact that he not only refuses to be wrong, but also just doesn't like would rather have it end than than see any sort of honor and have I don't know. The, he throws away Faramir's life seemingly, and then you know throws in the towel when he's when he's on his deathbed, um, yeah. which is just like again, Denethor, fuck you. Yeah, you know I get you, man. I guess I I, I f- just felt a little more sorry for him in the book than I did in the in the movie. Um, just because I, I feel like there were times where he felt like he was more with it. Um, and then he seems like truly just bereft and like re- he kind of realizes all the mistakes he's made when mm-hmm. Faramir comes back. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but um, Faramir in the book, I, I remember when I saw the movies way back in, you know, the year 2001, you know, or whatever it was, 2002, mm-hmm. whenever, whenever Return of the King came out, 2003, something like that. I think oh three, yeah. Um, I remember people saying, man, they're doing Faramir wrong in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I can feel that a little bit because I remember in the movie that that I, I was distrustful of Faramir. And that has never really been the case in the in the book. Like, the, you, we've always trusted Faramir. We've always felt like he's... He's uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's he's sort of resisted the urge of the of the ring, right? Even like more he, than Boromir did. Even more than Boromir. So in that sense, I've always felt like Faramir is much more of a tragic figure. Now I think they come around to that in the movie, but um, the character does suffer a little bit. I think because there's an initial phase where we're really distrustful of him. I also wonder if if it's an issue with theatrical versus extended cut. Oh, maybe of Faramir. Something else That's true because we do get about. some more Faramir scenes, like we talked about. I think in the first movie, we get a really interesting Faramir scene, and Denethor gets introduced um, with Boromir and like, this flashback sequence, which is yeah. really interesting. But again, I just want to give a token credit for this family dynamic. Like it's so interesting, right? Like these two sons and competing for their father's love, and the way he favors one of them so so much, and he expects so much of them, and um, just really really engaging characters that. Um, that really shine in this third book. So we also start hearing the first time, I think, where we start hearing about the talk of this black captain who none can stand against and even his own fear. Um, and I, I just love these, these descriptions of it. It just sounds very menacing and epic, right? The epic language of Tolkien is just on full display. And, um, and, and then at the same time, we see Denethor, um, like we talked about at the very beginning, we see leaders making mistakes and we see Denethor making some mistakes here too, tactical mistakes. Um, and because of that, uh, that's when Faramir falls and, and, uh, is brought back to the white tower. Faramir is sent to Osgiliath, which is a stronghold of Gondor, which has kind of been, uh, taken and then taken, taken by the forces of Mordor and then taken back by the men. Um, the battle that we were just talking about with Faramir and Boromir, that was like the battle where they retook Osgiliath, I believe. Yeah. Um, 
And then, so, you know, they lose it again in this, he's, he, Denethor refuses to lose his foothold at Osgiliath and sends Faramir on the suicide mission and a bunch of men come back. Faramir doesn't come back because he stays with the rear guard to try to make sure that a lot of men make it out. And then, yeah, as he's on his way back, he's poisoned by an arrow, hit by a poison arrow here. And then, um, yeah, Denethor immediately just like takes him for dead. And, you know, upon seeing Faramir like this, just goes and mourns over his sick body. And, and yeah, even while his city's under siege. Exactly. Refuses yeah. to make any leadership decisions. And Gandalf eventually kind of starts to lead the forces. And we see this siege uh, take place. We see these catapults, you know, uh, start hurling uh you know rocks in and then at one point we got a detail where they're they they start hurling in the heads of all the men they've killed yeah um which are described as like you know raining down and they're soft and then they have like these marks branded on their faces and they clearly died in anguish i think they set some of them on fire as they launched them maybe well and then we hear about men like seeing some some people that they remember like eating with and they recognized (laughs) and like I was dark like, this is, some grim, this is some grimdark shit, you know, yeah. here in the middle of Lord of the Rings. I was not expecting. Um, Brutal stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is this is someone who's seen, you know, what men are capable of and what people are capable of in war, I think. You know, this is Tolkien harnessing a little bit of that, you know, seeing, he's, yeah, he saw some shit in the trenches of World War One for sure. And yeah. um, I think he's harnessing that here. And just to finish sort of Pippin's little arc here, uh, we have him standing, standing, uh true to like the oath that he took when denethor is like um you know mourning over faramir he's right there pippin's right there with him and says like i'll fight for you i'll do all this stuff i'll earn earn this like sigil that he he gave mm-hmm. him all this armor and everything and denethor is like no just it's over go die however you see fit and then some men ask, come and ask for orders and he's like we're, we're all burning we're all in the fire let's just all yeah. burn together like why would you not yeah. want to die quickly basically yeah, just really like a broken man at that point, like completely just like off his rocker and, and yeah. like is making isn't even making any. He's not even trying anymore. Yeah, has no will to live at this point. And uh, Pippin goes to find Gandalf to tell him, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on. And he doesn't he's not able to do it uh, that we see here, um, but he, he's on his way. Oh, and it's specifically because Denethor is asking the servants to bring fire right they're gonna set him on a, they're gonna set him on a pyre and and kill and yeah light yeah he wants to go down and he says like we're gonna burn uh don't you know don't try and save us this is what's happening yeah him right. and and faramir for sure and, and pippin realizes that pippin realizes that faramir needs medicine he doesn't need to die and then la- the last thing we get here is this great ram wielded by cave trolls with a wolf heads on it it's called grand and it comes forward and it's like smashing the gates blows open and the Lord of the Nazgul comes through the gates and faces Gandalf who shows up and he's like, every time Gandalf like shows up, there's like a light, um, yeah. which I, I always picture as coming out of his staff because that's how it's depicted in the movie, but I don't think it's actually right. said that it is. It's kind of this holy light. Who Who's to say that he's not Jesus? <laughs> yeah, this holy light and he, he comes face to face with him and before we can get some sort of like uh, battle between between him and the demon of, uh, you know, Mor- uh, Moria. Instead, we get this horn rings out, and we know that the writers of Rohan are here. Um, we do get a pretty cool description of him having this, that he reveals that he has this crown. Um, the the We know he's the Witch King, although I don't know that he's actually called the Witch King um, in any of these pages. At one point, they say the Sorcerer King of Agmar. Um, which I thought was interesting because I always thought it was the Witch King of Agmar, and maybe it is, maybe it's maybe he's referred to that elsewhere as that. I don't know. Um, 
But anyway, we he's got a crown, he's got a flaming blade, and he's getting ready to fight Gandalf when we hear the horns. Oh, I did want to talk about the structure of this as well, because we, you know, we talked about in Fellowship, you know, everybody's together. In in Two Towers, the first book is split into um, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas going off and trying to get Merry and Pippin from the Urukai, yep. and then the other half is Frodo and Sam. And I also forgot that this is the case here, seemingly. Yeah, it is, and and I didn't have the same. I'm not having the same issues with it. Maybe partly because I've read through, you know, the two towers and it set me up for this. But also, I think once again because we have a Hobbit in every scene, <laughs> yeah. and I like having the Hobbits around. Whereas uh, there were large chunks of two towers where it was all Gimli, Aragorn, and Legolas, and no Hobbits because you know they were trying to find them. Now we got a little bit of Merry and Pippin interspersed in there, but for a long time they weren't there. It's just interesting, you know, I feel like you have to adjust kind of, I had to adjust to it again. I did I did think of like, okay, well, we're going to just hop back and forth. Um, and, you know, at this point, they've broken from two storylines of characters that are happening simultaneously. In this book, it's, you know, it's Gandalf and all of the stuff that he's doing with um, Pippin and everything in Minas Tirith. And then also we have Theoden as well as Aragorn and all the stuff that they do. Um, so it's basically three different storylines in this one book. And then, you know, we know, we know that we still have the Sam and Frodo stuff to come. Yeah. Which I'm looking forward to. And honestly, I don't, I don't know how this is going to play out exactly as far as the timeline goes, like how far are we going to go? So I'm, I'm going to be curious to see that next week, but let's keep it moving. We are on to chapter five, which is called the ride of the Rohirrim. The Rohirrim passed through the Druidan forest. I'm probably saying that wrong. With the aid of the wild men who live there, who are led by Gonbury Gon. Gan Berdigan, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, and the army arrives at Minas Tirith. So this is an interesting sort of like going back in time a little bit and showing how they arrived there. Um, and we get a couple of uh, pretty epic speeches by by Theoden here. And this is this is like the end of this is what I was talking about. You know, they're led through this path that only the wild men know of on their way to Minas Tirith to fulfill the sort of you know the call for, the call for aid. It's coming from Gondor. At the end, he Theoden sees like the destruction of Minas Tirith. He sees like how how the the forces of Sauron have been have just been winning, and um, I believe that what what is it? There's like I think it's the flash of light of Gandalf that that like inspires them to ride down. Right? That's Theoden yeah. Theoden's moment to like sort of give the speech, and then they yeah. all probably the flash of light of him confronting the witch king right that's right that's weird to and assume. that's and that also also the the horn that theoden blows at the end of this is the horn that we heard when gandalf and the, and the witch king were about to fight yeah well it's actually his like it's like his banner bearer blows it but he blows okay. it so hard that it bursts asunder <laughs> <laughs> he blows the horn until it explodes is that what you're telling me he, yeah he blows the horn so hard you guys got some bursts. nice lung capacity yeah and then like a bunch of other people blow their horns too to like take up the call but the, yeah. he's so inspired by the speech, he just blows it apart. Um, yeah, it's all good stuff. Um, it leads right into chapter six, which is called the Battle of Pelennor Fields. The armies of Rohan and Gondor fight the armies of Mordor. Merry and Erwin together kill the chief of the Nazgul, the Witch King of Angmar. All right, so this is the big showdown. Uh, we thought this was a good place to end. We see Theoden drive down and fight off the Southern Knights and the battle is is raging and the king falls under his own horse and the witch king arrives on the back of this giant webbed monstrosity and it's the first time we see one of these like fell beasts up close that these Nazgul have been riding on a, a recently and uh yeah it's a pretty pretty dramatic scene plays out here 
yeah, this is, I mean, this is the moment, right? Like this is the convergence of, of, oh, I guess we haven't even really gotten to it, but the convergence yeah, of no, men happening, is happening yeah. basically. Yep. Well, there's another faction of men to, that we'll talk about in a second, yeah. but like this is, this is the Rohirrim coming to the aid of, of Gondor. Um, and this, you know, the moment of the, the horns blowing and, and the Rohirrim coming down the mountain, uh, is what makes the Witch King turn from, from Gandalf and kind of like forget yeah. about the siege and stop this incoming threat. There's a lot of like, y- you couldn't have come a second later or it would have been too late going on here, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and then that, that comes up with, with Mary as well, right? So we get Mary who we talked about as this hero this hero moment we it kind of built there was like earlier in the chapter it was like mary was like so afraid of this creature that landed next to theoden and couldn't do anything couldn't move and then seeing well he's inspired by eowyn right exactly seeing eowyn like you know i'm you know i I forget exactly the wordage in the book it's different so i have it written down because i have it written down because it's different in the book um the witch king says no man may no living man may hinder me and then Eowyn says, but but no living man am I. You look upon a woman. And then right. she says her name. Which is badass, which is super yeah. awesome. Which is cool. Um, definitely gets changed a little bit in the movie. I think just to be maybe a little more pithy, a little quicker to say. Um, but definitely a cool line. And one that we've seen time and again, people kind of, I think, paying homage to this moment. Um, I think it's a pretty, pretty iconic moment, honestly. Definitely. And then, you know, she, she takes chops off her the head hood, off reveals, the fell beast. <laughs> reveals and, yeah, kills a fell beast and then kills the witch king because of yeah. Mary's assist. Mary's uh, assist, yeah, yeah. Mary is able to get in there and get a hit in in a, a crucial moment, not a minute too too soon, not a minute too late. And uh, I did want to talk about one other thing with sort of like uh, the way that Tolkien writes this 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 whole book so far. Um, just the environment, like the the natural weather of the world is being affected by the goings-on of the darkness and cloud and it's clear that that's become like a motif of fantasy but that it's so effective and i think it's also so it it leads you to believe that there's other forces other than just the men versus the the sauron's army uh there's other things at play here there's other forces who are you know who are i think you know invested in what's going on and you know Gandalf being able to to like represent the light and drive away the 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 darkness and the same thing with the Rohan is like you know they don't have any specific powers the they're just yeah. men but they yeah. come in such a force with such will and blow their horns and explode the horns that yeah. like the darkness is 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 scared away seemingly yeah. um and i just think that that's like a really epic way to tell a story and and sort of like leads to this myth- mythology of everything and makes it feel mythic and yeah. and uh, legendary and uh, so in this fight, Eowyn takes a hit, quite a hit herself uh, uh, against her shield but from the from the mace, um, falls and is presumed dead by a lot of people when they when they see her. Um, Theoden, Mary goes and talks to Theoden after after the Witch King is killed, and and Theoden didn't see any of this, and he um, wants Eomir by his side, and he feels bad that he didn't get to talk to Eowyn, who is like laying right by him. And for whatever reason, Mary doesn't like tell him like she's right there. <laughs> Go ahead and talk to him. Uh, I think because maybe it would like hurt him too much or something to know she was there. I don't know. Um, and then Aemir does come eventually, um, sees his father, and it gets pronounced that you know Theoden lives long just long enough to say that you know you're all hail the king of the Mark. You're the new king essentially. And Eowyn uh, then notices. Sorry, Aemir then notices Eowyn is there, and he like loses his shit. 
um, starts screaming death, death, death over and over and over again, which is not super inspiring, and um, leads the people off and just leaves her there. Um, and it takes well, Mary thinks, to say, like, she's not actually she, dead. <laughs> like, right, isn't yeah. it? Mary's with her, and actually there's this other guy who sh- comes up and, and checks her breath and sees that she's not dead. But um, it's clear that Amir thinks she's, she has died. Exactly, yeah. So that's that's the main thing is like he he thinks that she's dead so he's like death yeah, because I like, can't believe it he's just overcome and but I think that does lead him to to go back into battle right like I think he yes. leads men from that rage he he experiences right we get a lot of people just like dying it's a lot it's still really really bad even though the witch king has fallen um, and uh, then all of a sudden this watchman sees this black fleet coming up the river and uh, it's got the corsairs of Umbar. And they are like, well, this is it. We're done now. This is the enemy has come to kill us. And then we get this, um, we get this quote for from Aomir when he sees this, and he's like, well, this is going to be our last fight. He says, now for wrath, now for ruin, and the red nightfall, which gets changed a little bit in the movie because um, right. it gets blended with another thing Theoden had said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's his, he's planning to take this final stand, um, but this cool moment <laughs> is kind of toothless because it's not it's not the enemy it's it's aragorn so yeah i thought it was really smart to take this line that's very cool and be like i'm gonna use this at a different moment (laughs) right yeah yeah no i totally get that the uh i do love that that aomir is like laughing he has like this like fit of laughter and like he's gonna fight to the last no matter what even though like all hopes are lost but at the Mm -hmm. same time he's like laughing at their circumstances and he sort of just like can't believe it and and it's just like so overcome by the battle and everything that he's like, yeah. I, and I just thought that was a really interesting character quirk for him to just be like so yeah. enraged and so like, uh, you know, so overcome with the fact that they were going to lose that he's just like gleefully, you know, he's not, it's not, he's not happy, but it's like sort of like this, like, uh, he can't believe the circumstances. So it's well, so, like, him and Aragorn of, have this, this reuniting moment where they're like, yeah, they're like laughing and hugging and like, oh, oh, no, no. I mean, before I think before I think when he when sees he, the banner, when, when he sees the banner, I think that he's yeah. like, we're fucked. And he just starts laughing and killing people and like fighting to the end. Um, but yeah, the, the, it's oh, revealed. you're saying before he even knows that the, that the help is it's on the way he was laughing. I think it's like the fl- they see that they see the flags. They see that they're that all is lost because like the enemy fleet is coming in, mm-hmm. and then he starts killing people, laughing and and sort of just oh. like not not okay. really understanding the circumstances that it's Aragorn on the ships until the the white the white tree is dropped of Gondor the Elendil, right. right with its special with it's got like the stars on it and the crown, and it's mm-hmm. like oh the king has returned you know. Right. Um, and then, yeah, it's Aragorn with Gimli and Legolas. They come off, and there is a the briefest of descriptions of the rest of the fight. It's brutal. It takes the rest of the day, and a bunch of people die. And then it's over, and the dead are gone. Um, there's nothing crazy described. <laughs> um, we don't know that the dead... We know that the dead fight, but beyond that we don't really know like how effective they are that we do hear some stuff about like the mordor thinks like some fell trick is being played on them or something right right um but beyond that it's like it's not i I just think it's done more subtly here and it doesn't feel as as sort of cheating as it kind of does in the movie and just in my opinion i know other people will disagree with that but i just like it better in the book I, if you think about it visually, like I think you have to show like the. I, I do think that you can show less of them, but that shot of like Aragorn, like sort of, we'll, we'll talk about it in the movie, but running out and like as he runs out, like all the ghosts come through the through the ship, 
or whatever mm-hmm. like they get revealed as he's running out like that yeah. that i think that shot's needed but like sort of the fighting that goes on with the ghosts and all that stuff where they're like clearly never going to take damage and just continue slaughtering people i think is where it feels like kind of broken yeah. i think if you show that the army of the dead yeah there, i would have liked to see you could have had an army of the dead who could still be fought you know what I mean? Like, could still get you see some of them getting bested by a, yeah, a that's group true. of orcs yeah. or something. Like, instead, in you know, we'll, I don't want to harp on it too much because we're gonna get into the movie. But we'll get to it. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, I actually love this moment though. Like this, this is what I was talking about. The all three factions, like the, all the men are here. Every everyone has come to everyone's aid. You know, yeah. Aragorn is leading the the Dunedain. That we've got the Rohirrim. We've got Gondor under siege, and like all all of this together is like the the coming together and the solidifying of of men and and you know I think the age of man as as the elves and everybody have been sort of or the age of man is over or they've been saying like it is the age of man now because they're like leaving leaving middle earth we'll talk more about it as we get closer to the end yeah but, yeah um that, well, that and- this idea that like this is the moment that like so, like brings everyone together we, we talked about earlier in the episode like so, the, yeah. like a common threat can bring people together like this and and like sort of like do away with the th- sort of like um differences and i would have liked to see i would have liked to see the dwarves and the elves and stuff maybe have a little more of a presence here um really i don't know it just it, it feels like he was backpedaling on that a little bit and wanted this to be all about men which i guess does like that's going to appeal more to the men like us humans who are reading mm-hmm. it i'm not talking about men as in male but like well people. i think he yeah the other thing is like he has tons of lore that cover like all the heroes of the elves and you know the silmarillion and like everything of the dwarves and everything like that i think this yeah. is the, i think ultimately lord of the rings is a story of hobbits and men like yeah. i think i, I think, just I, I mean like couldn't there have been like a band of 30 dwarves who showed up to help gimli out or you know what i mean like it'd be nice it feels yeah. like him and it feels like him and legolas don't really have a lot to do here Right. Which is weird because they're so prominent in the movie. Well, wait till um, we get to the movie and then you get to see what Legolas does. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that. Um, anyway, that is my minor nitpick. I just I, I like Gimli and Legolas's characters, and they just feel like they get relegated to really just kind of bit bit roles here a little bit. With Gimli making some jokes at times about, you know, like uh, I can't believe as a dwarf I don't want to go into the underground, and the human does, right. you know, and like other yeah. than that, he doesn't do a whole lot at least early on in the book. Maybe we'll see more later. That was something that I meant to mention, like how terrified Gimli was going into the the path of the dead. Yeah, you know, he was talking about how like his knees were shaking and like yeah. you know he it's like he was legitimately terrified. Well, and then like and Legolas is just like calm, doesn't doesn't care. The dead of men don't don't frighten me. Right, you he's know, above, like he's yeah. above it all, beyond it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, this chapter ends with a with a with a lengthy song um, that is sort of like summing up the battle, and we hear this list of all these people who died. A lot of the minor characters we've met along the way, it seems like have all, a lot of them perished in the battle. Um, and there's a hefty toll, you know. We know we know that Theoden died. We know that um, you know there's severe injuries to a lot of people. We know that Faramir is severely injured. Denethor's you know trying to kill himself. We'll see how that plays out. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, it, this is a, a a major, major battle, and they're opening the book with it is, I think, a bold move. And, you know, because it's like this is book one of two of this third book, it's like kind of complicated. But still, it's it's interesting that you lead with such a massive moment like this um, in the first third. Which Yeah. I'm just happy to be back in Middle Earth. I'm really enjoying yeah, I know, this. Yeah, right? Feels good. It feels good to be back, even though we're at like the darkest of moments here, which feels appropriate. But um 
it does feel good to be back in Middle Earth. Um, I long for the days of Hobbiton when everything was mm-hmm. nice and easy and comforting and there was song and cheer and, and good food and friends. And uh, I think we all we all miss those moments now, but we're in the we're in the sh- we're in the shit now. We're in the thick we're of in it. the shit right now. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully the ending will be nice. Yeah, you know? I hope so. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting into more of this, you know, over the next few weeks. We hope you stick around with us, um, you know, follow, follow these next few episodes. I think it's going to be a fun ride. And uh, yeah, we're hoping that you have been enjoying this. If you did enjoy this episode, uh, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Um, super helpful, especially right now, to help us get the word out. We're all kind of trapped in our homes. Um, and it's nice to, to, to try and get, get uh, knowledge of the show out to everybody. Yeah, and also uh, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And please join the Council of Inklings because it's a great way to stay connected. Uh, we post news about upcoming adaptations, um, any sort of news that we find particularly interesting. And we do polls in there sometimes uh, for future projects. Yeah, absolutely. And we wanted to thank one of our newest patrons, Ashley W., uh, just joined up. Um, Right now, to have a new patron come in and, and commit some money to us is, is you know, honestly humbling. And um, we're really thankful that, that uh, she's done that. And if you'd like to find out what we're offering, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash inktofilm. We do bonus episodes on there every month. Um, so check it out. We want to thank Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. I'm going to leave our listeners with some final words here. This is from Theoden himself. It is forth now and fear no darkness. And I think that's a, a good uh, motto we can all have as we as we enter these uncertain times. Um, assuming we are able to do it and that we're both healthy enough, we will be back next week. And uh, we hope you guys join us for that. Uh, we hope you're all staying safe out there and, you know, healthy. And, uh, you know, keep keep doing what you're doing. I know it's tough. Do your social distancing. You know, take the measures you need to do to keep yourself safe and keep others safe. Um, and if you, and if you do get it, we hope it's a mild case, you know, um, I I don't know what else to say, but, uh, I guess, uh, you you want to add anything? Yeah. Wash those hands. Yeah. Wash the hands. Absolutely. (laughs) I'll be doing that right now. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as we get Uh, off. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening.